Welcome to Latinos Who Tech. My name is Hugo Castellanos. I'm an engineer and I work in Silicon Valley. I am originally from Caracas, Venezuela, and I've been calling the U.S. home for the last 20 years. When it comes to Latinos in the U.S., we are 60 million people, but we're only 3% of the workers in science or engineering. As a professional in Silicon Valley, I've had the opportunity to meet some remarkable professionals that work in the tech industry, Latinos like me. With this podcast, I want to bring you a collection of their stories and how they got a job in tech in the first place. And if they had to start all over again, what would they do differently? I want to share with you career advice on how to get a job in tech, how to deal with imposter syndrome, how to find your tribe when you're the only one in the room. This is Latinos Who Tech. Doctora Liliana de la Paz, welcome to Latinos Who Tech. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So happy that you made the time, especially on a Monday evening. Thank you for carving a piece of your schedule for us. Really appreciate it. It's an honor. I'm flattered. And I hope some people can get something out of my story. So absolutely. It also helps that you're running an experiment in the background and we have to wait for it to be yeah. done. So kind of like a multitasking. Yeah, we know. are. We're being very efficient. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we're engineers mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley. It's part of the job description. You know? That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell me about yourself and about the place where we are. It all started on February 17th, 1988, the day I was born. <laughs> um, so I was born in the East Bay, in, in the Bay Area. I've lived within 25 miles of where I was born my entire life. So I was born in Fremont, California. I did my undergraduate education at UC Berkeley, Go Bears. Um, Go Bears. And so I just moved right up on the East Bay along that coast. And then I finished at Berkeley and I went to Stanford where I got my PhD in chemical engineering as well. And I was at Stanford. I lived in San Francisco one summer when I was in college. So I like to think that I've been on every corner of the Bay. Um, (laughs) So that's my geographic origins right there. I come from a family of three children and my, my parents are emigrated from Mexico when they were late teens, early 20s. They don't have any formal education. So uh, my siblings and I were the first in our family to go to college. And and I was the first to get a graduate degree. Let's see, I have an older sister who also went to Berkeley and a younger brother uh, who went to Stanford. Uh, There's the three of us. And then I have a little dog named Mikey who was bought on the day that I went to Berkeley. So that my, my parents didn't want him, to, my brother, to get depressed when I left for college. So I was replaced <laughs> with a dog who I love very dearly. And he still lives to this day. So what's uh, Mikey's undergrad on? <laughs> you know, we often fight about, like, it's a house divided. So who has who? So because my sister and I both went to Cal for undergrad, I, I'm thinking that my, Mikey probably, my brother can take him for the Stanford undergrad. <laughs> Got it. So you can, like, keep it even. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Gotcha. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm a strong believer that you can learn something new from anyone you meet. That is why every month I compile all the key learnings from this podcasting experience and summarize them in my monthly newsletter. I curate the resources we talk about, key learnings, books I'm currently reading, and give you recommendations on how to become a better Latino professional. You can sign up following the show notes or at latinoswhotech.com. Thank you. So um, I come from a completely 
different background in the sense that my dad, he was a college professor of philosophy and mathematics. And then my mom, she was an English teacher. So in my house, I was always surrounded by books. And my dad would, every Thursday evening, he would hang out with his other professor friends. Uh-huh. It's a very and, academic uh, and setting. T- <laughs> and they're talking about Nietzsche mm-hmm. and all these things. Yeah. And, you know, like I'm reading books that are, you know, way above mm-hmm. my, my age at, uh-huh. at the time. And, you know, I'm listening to these conversations. Yeah. You know, and uh, I was very fortunate to be exposed to that. Yeah, that colors um, your upbringing and the expectation of like that you're going to fill mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Need. And I'm not even sure how I ended up in engineering school. <laughs> yeah, it's like because I should have been like a, a philosopher. A, a or humanities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So I guess like uh, I guess you rebel in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> like if you're that's a lawyer, mm-hmm. then, you know, you become like a Greenpeace activist. Or something. <laughs> like, yeah, there you go. Like the opposite. So my question for you is, what was it like being a first generation Latina at Berkeley? What was that like? First of all, I want to address the part where you said that your upbringing was very much colored by your parents' profession. I never actively thought about my parents not having an education because at the same time, I didn't know what to expect. I just knew that after high school, there was college, but I didn't even know what life after college would look like or that graduate school existed. I didn't know anything about the pipeline, if you will. Right. I just knew that you go to college and my parents instill importance of education. They were definitely very supportive and try to help us with our homework as far along as they could. Obviously that died out early on, but they were incredibly supportive and provided that environment and that nurturing support that we needed, but they couldn't read our personal statements. And they weren't like those tiger parents that are going to like dominate their child's like life to like have them become this one person who's going to go to such and such school and major in such and such thing and then have a Mm -hmm. career in X, Y, Z. So because I'm very thankful I didn't have that actually. I think I had a very beautiful childhood. I was very free of expectation. My parents didn't care if we went to Cal State Hayward around the corner. We went to Berkeley one summer for Cal Day one night. We were like in junior high because some people we knew from church, their daughters went to Cal and they invited Mm -hmm. us. And we went there. My parents were like, this is too far. It's too ugly. Why are they going to come here? It was just like, they can go to Cal State Hayward. It's right around the corner from our house. And so they were like, yeah, this sounds great. sounds like a really good school, but why would they bother? So they never said like, you need to go to this school. I need to take you to piano classes so you prove that you're well-rounded and you're personal mm-hmm. statement or you need to learn how to ride a horse there was none of that and I had a, like I was falling off my bike when I my train wheels got taken off right so I was I had a very like real childhood because of the lack of pressure from my parents lack of knowing so I'm very thankful for that I think everything I've done up to this point has been solely based because on my desire to do it and my parents support but even when I was in grad school every time I started crying and saying like what am I doing they were the first to say like you can always leave like your mm-hmm. worst case scenario is you'll have a master's and, and that always gave me like right. this freedom of like they were never that parent who was like disappointed about anything like I just felt their love and their support mm-hmm. and I think that was the feel I had I mean I had many friends in graduate school whose parents had PhDs for them they knew from the moment they were in high school they had to get a PhD. It's like they could see like the 12 year trajectory in front of their face, right? I just like walked into it slowly without knowing it's like this dark tunnel, but you don't know what's going to happen on their end. But on the other hand, these people who know that this is a 12 year journey and then you have to be like your dad or your uncle mm-hmm. or your mom, I think I found that there was less satisfaction what they achieved because there's an expectation to meet. The fact that I didn't have that, I think I'm very thankful for it. And I don't know what that means for my future children. Like, mm-hmm. what could I impart on them? Like, probably stress rather than like the freedom to choose that I had. And I think that you hit the nail on the head there because it's about living in the present. So that one day at a time that you're not thinking about 
12 years from now, I want to be doing a postdoc mm -hmm. in something or other. You're thinking about, I just want to pass that test Tuesday. Yeah. You know, so you're kind of like free from that pressure of, oh, I need to interview for a job and then I need to buy a house and get married and have kids. You're not thinking about that. You're thinking about what's going to happen this week at Berkeley. So I think that's liberating in a way. Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't thinking necessarily by a week. I was thinking more like college, like being mm -hmm. done with college. I wasn't thinking about life after necessarily. Like, what, like what do I do? I, do I get a job? Do I go to grad school? Like, none of that was up in the air. But like, I definitely knew that I had to work hard all four years. Like, I was committed to that. So what was uh, like your roadmap? Like, do you think that, oh, I finished college, so... Maybe I'll get a job after. Why a PhD? You know. Oh, that's, because that's I was I was lucky that I I was I participated in many programs that kind of that color um, your path, and I was a part of several STEM programs for undergraduates who are first in their families mm -hmm. to go to college or underrepresented minorities, and they created this um, this community that fostered all these uh, students with similar backgrounds, and these become good friends because they, you guys share the same struggle. Like we right. we both come from back similar backgrounds. We're both in this unknown abyss together and trying to pass physics. That being a part of these programs helped me meet friends that help support the journey. But also there were mentors that you were introduced to that kind of helped shape what you could think about. So mm -hmm. I did a program that was for undergraduate research experiences. And the whole idea there is to give you research experience and then you can apply to graduate school. Right. So that kind of tracks you into you're going to go to graduate school. So at the end of the day, I felt like I, this isn't a problem. I let them track me because I figured if I apply, I'll have an application ready for it because I'll have research experience. And if I apply for a job, it will be fine. Like they won't hate that I had research experience either. So right. I just figured that that was going to be okay. But then the problem is I found that later when I was in graduate school, then the trajectory was like becoming a professor. And like, it was like my fourth year in a grad school that I realized that people go into different things. Like they explore different options. Like later, once you have a PhD, you're not, you don't just have to do research or become a professor. Mm -hmm. You can go work in finance or be a consultant, or there's a lot of different avenues. But I think being a part of programs helps really inform what you decide to do. And that's why you have to be really like open and, and receptive to all these opportunities. I love the fact that you were open to opportunities and I was wondering if you could share with me why why chemical engineering you have yeah. all these options yeah you're uh. the first Latina in college you don't have that pressure that my dad was a professor or my dad was a mm -hmm. lawyer like you don't have that pressure so you're like you have like a, have like a blank slate right of uh. opportunity so why chemical engineering yeah that's a great question so when I was in high school I loved calculus so I love math I really like chemistry and I guess that could have turned into like maybe biochemistry or like some other major like that mm -hmm. but I knew that at Cal my sister went to Berkeley she's two years ahead of me and so she was friends with a bunch of engineers and from them I knew that chemical engineering was the hardest major at Berkeley so my tactic was kind of like a go bear go home person I thought well then in that case I'm gonna put chemical engineering sounds great I like math I like chemistry I'm gonna apply to that so I didn't know what chemical engineering truly was until I did my full undergraduate course. Then I understood like how broad it is, but I stuck it out because it was the hardest. Like I'm not the personality type. I know people say that when people go to college, they switch majors every week. That's not my personality. Uh, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to commit. And so that's why I had to do it. I knew it was hard. I learned through firsthand character building that it definitely was. It was mm. not like a butterflies and rainbows experience, but it was worth it. And so when I started at Berkeley, I realized in my initial thought was I'm going to apply to college of engineering because that'll probably be harder to get into. 
into. And I fear right. that if I didn't like engineering, I could just switch into another college, like letters and sciences or whatever later. And that would be less hard to get into because they're bigger. But lo and behold, I didn't know that chemical engineering is the only engineering discipline that isn't the College of Engineering. It's mm, its own college. college. It's College of Chemistry, right. which is just chemistry, chemical engineering, chemical biology. And I was always very bitter about the fact what I consider to be the hardest and pretty much is empirically the hardest major on campus um, with Eeks being a close second, which is electrical engineering, computer science. But I was always offended that I wasn't in the part of, part of the College of Engineering, that I was in part of uh, College of Chemistry. But now I'm very proud of that because College of Chemistry is number one in the world. It like always switches on and off with MIT. So now it's like a proud moment. Although at the time I was like, hey, I'm an engineer too. <laughs> and that's the thing. And nobody can take it away from you. Like no, you are an engineer. Yeah. yeah. You're an engineer always. Like once you pass through that gauntlet. Yeah, that, of course. That you are. It's a rites of passage. Yeah, it mm-hmm. is. It is. It teaches you mm-hmm. grit. Yeah. And perseverance and Absolutely. how to get stuff done. So you are at Berkeley. You're finishing your undergrad. Mm-hmm. Why a PhD? And why Stanford? Like you have so many options here in the Bay Area. I mean, I hear it like go big, go home kind uh-huh. of mentality. Yeah. I mean, that's in your DNA. But like, how do you get to Stanford? So when I was doing these research programs, they tell you about what you need to get into graduate school. You need to take the GREs. You need to have research experience. You need to get letters of rec. You need mm-hmm. to should apply for fellowships. So I learned all these different things. And I wasn't going to let any of this go by while I was an undergraduate. So I did all that that they told me. And then I wasn't sure I wanted a PhD. I just Mm. knew I wasn't going to settle with a bachelor's degree. So I figured I'm going to get a master's, but I don't want to pay for it. And so I figured that by getting a PhD, which, you know, is sort of counterintuitive because a PhD program is harder to get into. A master's program is arguably less so because a lot of schools, that's how they make money. They're like master's factories of just taking Mm -hmm. all those master's students to take their money. And um, I didn't want to be part of that system. So I figured what I was going to do is I was going to apply to a PhD program because I know they pay you once they accept you. And I figured worst case scenario, if I don't like it, I'm going to leave with a master's that I didn't pay for. So that was always my strategy. Was I playing a more difficult game? Absolutely. Because my chances of getting in were far lower through a PhD versus a master's. And I applied to a bunch of schools and I knew I wanted to stay in California. I'm very close to my family. I didn't want to leave. I couldn't stay at Berkeley because um, they don't take their undergraduates. You have to move on. They force you to move on unless I had switched to another program. So I toyed about going to the bioengineering route at Berkeley instead. But I wanted to stay true to Chem E. I figure like that when you go get a PhD, you can decide the course of your research. And even that, that doesn't define you. Uh, my research right now, I mean, what I did in graduate school is not what I work on presently. Do you have any like uh, mentors or people to help you? In this process while you were in undergrad? Do you reach out to people? The people who run these programs that I participated in, like the okay. like I did the CalNerds program, which is the New Experiences for Research and Diversity in Science. And so the program director there, she would host these sessions on like, today we're going to learn about fellowships. Today we're going to mm-hmm. learn about the GRE. Today we're going to meet students who just went through the process. And so I mm-hmm. met a lot of people that way. Did I have one mentor? Absolutely not. Yeah, uh, like an army of mentors. It's just, like a- uh, And you know what? I'm, I can't even tell you that that I ever had like one mentor that I can say like, oh, such and such person. I call them angels that happen in your life at different times when you need them. For instance, my freshman year at Berkeley, I had gone through this two week boot camp where I met a lot of really good friends that we were all underrepresented Mm -hmm. uh, first generation students wanting to pursue an engineering degree. So we did a two week boot camp where we're learning a calculus, chemistry, physics. And that was led by some graduate students. And that's where I learned that graduate school existed because I didn't know before. And these were our RAs. Um, They would walk us to class 
and take us to the cafeteria. And they told us that they were uh, doing research. And I didn't even know what that was, mm-hmm. but I took note of that. So my very first semester at uh, Berkeley, I emailed 11 faculty in the College of Chemistry. And I asked them if I could just be in their lab so I can learn research. And mind you, I'm like a freshman that knows Jack. Like, I know nothing at this point. And I just said- cold emailing these yeah. uh, researchers. Like, right. And so, <laughs> and there was one professor- And most of them ignore you, of course, as you might expect. There was one professor who emailed me back and said that he wanted to meet me. So I went to his office and he is like the father of chemical engineering thermodynamics. And I didn't know this at the time. And he was a professor emeritus. So he was like, he doesn't have a lab. He's just so important. He can just exist and just walk around the halls, right? He wanted to meet me probably because of my audacity to just email him and be like, can I join your lab? It's like, sweetheart, I don't have a lab. I'm like that important now. Like I have dimensionless numbers named after me, like that serious, right? And so like this building is named after me. Yeah. That's where my office is. Um, so I went, I, I talked to him in his office and then he was just kind of like smiling, curious about me and asking me like where I was from. And he was being really kind despite my obvious lack of ignorance. Like I told him kind of why I wanted to do chemi because just like very basic, like I like chemistry, I like math, we'll see. And he just said, oh, you know, I'm very happy we're still taking good students. And now I think about it, that was very generous of him to say because there was no reason for him to have thought that he should should have thought I was a complete idiot. But then he asked me to get up and read an article he had framed on the wall. And that article was like a 1932 article from the New Yorker that said why you should marry a chemical engineer. But it was like a husband. So it was like, because back in the day, it's like all men were engineers, right? Mm-hmm. So this was, uh, you should find yourself a male chemical engineer uh, husband. And then it listed all the reasons why they were good uh, husband material. And then he made me read it aloud to him. And when I finished, he said, so there you go. That is a good reason to stay in the major, okay? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> duly noted. But that was like a really cute endearing moment with this like guy who's incredibly important and yet took the time to want to meet me and just kind of encourage me and I did a lot of things like that when I was an undergraduate like I just Mm -hmm. didn't know better and I would just like ask things out of ignorance and didn't realize how dumb I looked by asking things that I didn't even realize how ridiculous they were but anyway I didn't meet one professor forward my email to a graduate student who needed help making buffers and I was able to go into a lab but the thing is I was so nervous I remember it start sweating when I was just like way out any powders or adding water it, everything looks so intimidating in these lab settings that I was like I'm gonna break a beaker I'm gonna do something wrong here like it was actually taxing on me it wasn't mm-hmm. a joyful experience because I was so insecure I was afraid that I was supposed to help the grad student and now that I've been through grad school I realized like grad students they're people who are trying to avoid the real world really they just want to be in school to like avoid being a grown-up and so there's nothing to fear about them and yet I was terrified on how yeah, to make these buffers yeah, for the undergrads that are afraid of going through their teeth TAs of his hours, your TA is probably more afraid of you than you. Oh, absolutely. Than. They're afraid you're going to ask them a so, question that you don't know, that you want to know the answer to. Definitely. Right. Yeah. And can I tell you like a 10 second story? Absolutely. Back in the 1920s, there was this piano player. He was an amazing virtuoso piano player in the mm-hmm. South and he was blind. And the way that he learned to play the piano is that his mom would turn on the radio And he would listen to, you know, the radio programs, radio shows. And they had a piano in the house. So by ear, he would pick up and play with the piano. And one time they play in the radio a piano tune that is supposed to be played by two piano players at the same time. So it's played at four hands. Right. And this 12-year-old kid didn't know that. Just listen to the tune huh, this is a bit harder. I can do it. So he was able to play a four-hand piano tune by himself. Oh, wow. It's impressive. Because he didn't know 
that it was that, a, the that, protocols for right, hands. Yeah. Right, because he didn't know that, <laughs> no, that's not how you're supposed to do things. So you that's that funny. you're listening to this, I invite you to just try it. Play with two hands. You'll be amazed what comes out. So, Absolutely. And I see that totally in you. I mean, that you're talking with this emeritus professor and you don't have any, you know, like... Not no that, reservations. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. no te da pena. You just go talk to them. They're people know. too. Ignorance is bliss. It truly is. Ignorance mm-hmm. is bliss. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I love it. And look at you now. <laughs> you're the first chemical engineering PhD from Stanford. Yeah, that's interesting <laughs> how that happened. You know, I'll, a, I'll, a I'll, say, I'll, story. Say, I'll say that again. You're, you're the first... <laughs> Chemical Engineering PhD, Latina from Stanford. Be proud of that. that that's yeah, amazing. I am, that's amazing. Sometimes it doesn't doesn't register. But you know, the funny thing is, I worked in the lab of a Cuban professor at Berkeley. He's also a big shot heterogeneous catalysis, and he got his PhD at Stanford uh, in back in 1986. And he was the first male Latino to get a PhD in chemical engineering at Stanford. And literally 30 years later. I come in to be the first woman, which is funny. It took 30 years. <laughs> That's amazing. It's very humbling. It's super humbling. It's super mm. humbling. And again, it's a shame that it took this long, but I'm happy it happened. I'm yeah, happy it happened. Mm. I'm happy that there's people like you that are trailblazing. And I have to say that we do have a few other girls that started when I finished, but I'm particularly proud to be the first because I think the plight is very different. They come from families where their parents are educated. They all went to, like their parents went to MIT and they lived in a Latin American country and then they just came here for MIT and then they went to Stanford. So it's a very different struggle. And I mm-hmm. think for me, the pain was more ardent and therefore I would love to see someone else like me come through. But unfortunately, it's not not unfortunate it's great that we have more latinas coming through but they're they don't have the same their upbringing has been very different and right. so that's why i'm glad to be the first from this like completely first generation unknowing mm-hmm. track if you will and this is something that is particularly interesting to me the fact that talent can be anywhere i mean is this uh... it's not just talent it's also just perseverance and desire to do something i don't think that a person has to be brilliant to do a phd and i was told this and i remembered it and i took it to heart as best as i could when we were doing safety training my first week at, at Stanford. It was for all the PhD students. They were telling us to be safe. They were saying things like, make sure you're safe in the lab because you may do things all nilly-willy and then later find out you can't have children because of poor choices you made in handling chemicals. I'm like, okay, duly noted. But then there was another instance where one professor said that a PhD at the end of the day needs to be able to complete the project that you've been working on or project. He said, this is a story that you need to finish and you need to like write a book and put a nice bow and tie that bow and that's when you're done. And he said, I I've met a lot of really smart students that can't put a bow on that and leave without a PhD. But if you make it a point to complete that story and put your bow, you're going to be successful at doing this. And I think a lot of it is tenacity and ambition. That really helps you find that perfect bow that you're going to put and wrap up your story and say, here it is, I'm done. I don't think it's necessarily like brilliance per se that, that drives you to get a PhD. It's just someone who's curious and can go through a lot of pain because you're working on your own on some like isolated research question that no one really cares about anyway. You go through a lot of research upsets. And at the end of the day, you even if you're thesis is the story of what it isn't you have a story to tell and you just need to finish it right and it's about showing up every day mm-hmm. and doing the work right and because like motivation is bullshit right. mm-hmm. motivation is bullshit mm-hmm. like like you have to show up every day yeah it's 7 p.m 
and we're doing this because it's awesome because we believe in the mission and we think that this is going to help. If this helps two students that are struggling with imposter syndrome, it. like mm -hmm. it's totally mm -hmm. worth it. If this helps the little Liliana of the future, quien sabe? Yeah. No, it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it. Speaking about what makes you strong as a PhD student versus like real life. When I was an undergraduate, there was a friend of mine. The class at Berkeley are about 300 kids big. So my chemi class was like 300 students. And mm -hmm. so um, I think by the time we graduated, there were probably 100 because everyone dropped the major. But there was one guy who came to Stanford. He was the class valedictorian when we graduated. He was brilliant. And he is brilliant. And so we both went to Stanford for our PhDs, which to me was very humbling. The fact that I was coming with him, we were the only ones that were going to go to Stanford for the PhD program in chemi. And uh, I really respect him. We were in different labs. And we both finished around the same time, probably a month apart from each other. And we both work at the same job right now, working the same departments on the same day. And I can't tell you how validating that has been for my journey because he is a person that I hugely respect and admire because he is empirically brilliant. And I've never thought of myself as the, like the most brilliant person. I know I work hard, but I've never thought of myself as brilliant. And yet we've shared the exact same journey and we finished grad school around the same time and we started here. And when we started work here, I think we've been given different opportunities at, at work here and I've really been allowed to shine based on the projects that have been assigned to me. And mm -hmm. I was reflecting on this with my advisor, um, my PhD advisor, not too long ago. And I just feel really lucky that I've been given X project versus him who like I think is so smart and then my advisor said well you know what academic success does not equate to success in real life in industry you need different personalities just different scopes and a different way to tackle problems a person who can succeed in academia could also just be a person who just lets you sit there and think about questions oh that's a really interesting point let me think about this we should study this versus in the real world sometimes you need a little bit of a different dynamic and so that was really encouraging to hear mm -hmm. because I otherwise would just feel imposter syndrome that this guy, I'm probably behind the shadow, but yet I haven't felt that, like I felt very validated mm. and um, empowered knowing that he's here and then we're sharing the same journey, yet we've had very different experiences. That's been really nice. Is this the same one that you guys were doing this training for work and he was uh, going, yes? Uh -huh. Oh, this is, that's right. So we have... Um, Again, we've lived, he's also from the Bay Area. We are like each other's counterparts. And so I've been with him throughout the entire journey. And so I know what he got his PhD on and all his PhD work. And likewise, he knows mine. And when we started here, neither of us have any formal training in what we do right now. And yet our first week we had group meeting and we were listening to some presentation about things that now we both understand and we both do. But at the time, it was obviously very new. And he was sitting at group meeting, nodding, just bobbleheading mm -hmm. in agreement with what was being said. And we started the same day with another girl. And I was thinking, if I were her, I would be so intimidated because I would be like, oh, yeah, Stanford boy definitely knows what's going on. And I don't. But I know exactly what he did. He just stared at a microscope for six years and came up <laughs> with great findings, mind you. But um, that none of that relates to what we do here. And so the fact that he just was exuding this confidence, I was like, wow, men really just have this confidence that they just like walk the walk and talk the talk. But yet I know for the first time in my life, I know there was no previous experience in me thinking that he would know exactly what they were talking about so that was really eye-opening as a man like uh, fake it till you make it mm -hmm. that's a mantra that we use all the time absolutely and and that's the thing because the confidence it pays off oh yeah um, i read somewhere mm -hmm. that for a lot of the job openings there's a large number of women that will see a job opening and if they don't meet every single of their criteria they won't apply of course mm -hmm. but then guys 
we will look at the job opening and, oh, I can do that. I'll I've figure never, it out. I've never done that, but I will learn how. I'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. I'll make it sound like I've yeah, done it before course. in my uh-huh. resume. Yeah. And to me, because I, I have my own blind spots. So I'm totally guilty of doing that too. You know, I will figure it out. I'll learn on the job. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll show them how to do it by learning on the job. You brought this term that I want to get a little bit deeper into, imposter syndrome. What would you say is imposter syndrome? Oh, it's just this disbelief in your ability to perform and that you think everyone else will exceed the expectation, but you can't measure right. up, that you are inadequate. Do you feel this at times as a professional? Is that something that affects you? I think the further along I've come along in my career, it's fading away. I do recognize, though, that as I become better in what I do, but I recognize that if I want to pivot in my career, it's going to come back again because I'm going to go into something where I'm going to try to prove myself again mm-hmm. and demonstrate any kind of competence. It's going to come back. Right now, I'm feeling, I don't want to sound self-indulgent, but I'm pretty satisfied in like what my performance through now and I feel better about where I am. But imposter definitely plagued me once I was started Berkeley. Berkeley is full of brilliant students and you realize your kingdom ends when you're in high school. Like I was the perfect student in high school. Like my goal in high school was just not even to have a minuses. Like I had the perfect record and I had the most rigorous course load that I could possibly have with all the APs and everything. And I was so proud of the fact that I couldn't even get an A minus. Yeah, I go to Berkeley and an A minus is really, really good. Like that is a good quarter and a good class. Or sorry, it was semester there. But the point is that I realized my kingdom had fallen really quickly when I started at Berkeley. I'm very thankful for that too, because at the same time, when I went to Stanford, a lot of the PhD students were coming from small schools where they had 4.0s, but mm-hmm. where they don't have rigorous chemical engineering programs. So they come in, we take a fluid mechanics midterm and the average is like a 52. Yes. So if we got a 63, I was delighted that I had a 63, right? But they were crying because they had like a 50 or whatever. Of and course. so they weren't used to that failure, but Berkeley conditioned pretty well for that. Right. They gave you that thicker skin. Absolutely. You were more yeah. willing to actually take that failure, take the learning, move on. Yeah, definitely. You don't you don't let that plague your existence. But at the same time, I think going back to the imposter syndrome, that happens whenever you're in a new environment. So that's why when I was in a lab, can I make a buffer? Absolutely. With my eyes closed. Like that is not a difficult thing to do. But yet when I was put in as a freshman. What's a buffer? I'm sorry. A buffer is some media that has a certain ionic strength and a certain capacity to keep you within a certain PKA if you are injected a solution into your body, you want to make sure it's isotonic with your body. So you want to introduce a chemical that buffers you so you're within that pH because that way you don't inject an acid that will burn you. Gotcha. So, so it's something that you're it's doing a, It's a lab. water. You're right. weighing out into water some phosphate, salt, and some sodium chloride. It's very basic. You're just weighing Got out it. a little bit of solids and adding water and mixing it. That's a buffer. Got it. Something um, that a chemical engineering freshman would do would in do. a lab. Or any normally. chemistry. Yeah, that's it's really basic part of the job. But I was new to the environment. I didn't even know what a research lab looked like. I just saw pretty colored pastel boxes, which is like where you keep your Eppendorf tubes. Biology labs um, or biochemistry labs are very pretty because of the bright colors from like the Eppendorf tubes, the pipettes and all these things. And so I was just intimidated by this new environment that I was not exposed to before. So something as basic as measuring out water in a graduate cylinder and weighing out 0.32 grams of monosodium phosphate was scary to me. The only thing I remember from that time is that when you were measuring water, you have to take it to eye level because the of meniscus. the meniscus. Mm-hmm. That's, that's right, yeah. That's the only thing that stuck. <laughs> uh, thank you, Dr. Garcia, if you're listening to this. 
So something as simple as that can really eat you up when you have imposter syndrome because you're just scared that you're going to mess things up or that they're going to find out that you shouldn't be in there. That's the fear of imposter syndrome, right? Mm. That you're going to get caught. At some point, someone's going to tell you, you don't belong here. I've even struggled that in my professional life early on. I told my so? my manager, I, I've told him, I don't think I'm a scientist like the other. I have four other scientists that started entry-level PhDs that started the same time as I did. And um, we are very different, all of us. And I discussed this with my manager and I said, I think I'm very different than X, Y, and Z. And I sometimes don't know if I should be a scientist. And he was very frustrated to hear me say this and explain that that was like the beauty in working with me and that I bring other facets to the table, which you just think is a bunch of baloney because that's what people tell you all the time. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, that's just something you need to resolve on your own because no one can tell you, oh, but you're, you shine and you're beautiful and all these things. And that's going to make it better because at the end of the day, if you don't think you're all these things, it's going to fall apart anyway. How do you cope then? How do you resolve this internally? What works for you? I don't know that there. I resolved it yet until I have milestones that I complete, that I know I, I did this, I satisfied X, Y, and Z, then I feel good about myself. And that ecstasy that comes from that, that shields it for a while. And then you don't think about imposter syndrome. Right now, for instance, I'm working on a project that gives me a lot of visibility with senior management. I sit with the VPs all the time and I explain the data. And I can be sitting there with my manager who's quote unquote what, taking care of me in case they ask me something that I'll fall apart. But that doesn't happen if they ask me anything technical. Down to the why I chose such polymers and what's a molecular weight. I know down to that level of detail. And that makes me feel really good because I've designed the experiment. I know all the details because Maybe I had someone else to experiment for me, but I know that I designed it and I know all the details. They can ask and I'm going to know all that. And so when I come out of these meetings and I can answer all these questions, my imposter syndrome just dies because I know I did that by myself. And so I think setting goals and meeting them will help you eventually feel good about your performance. And that's what takes it away. When you just think you're afraid of your ability to perform, but you're never given an opportunity to do well it's easy to succumb to that, I think. Got it. Can I tell you what works for me? Sure. I do these presentations for work in front of 100, 200 people. And these are you know, salespeople of course. that make mm -hmm. thousands, millions of dollars. And it's intimidating at of times. Of course, yeah. And I'm nervous every time. But I'm nervous because I care. Because yeah. I want it to come out well. So what I do that works for me is that actually I have these kudos folder in my oh that's in, nice in my yeah. in my computer of so course. actually uh -huh. so whenever i feel like this inkling of man i don't know if i should be doing this like uh like really i'm the subject matter expert on this like yeah because i work in this product i've been uh -huh. doing this product for a uh -huh. year so they sell 40 different products i'm the one that knows the most about this product i am the subject matter expert so i look at my kudos folder and i look at all the um, recognitions mm -hmm. the recognitions they've given me via email so when people leave those comments in training of how well you did it right mm -hmm. i read every single one of those oh that's i love that that's so, very sweet so i mm -hmm. have it handy just in case because uh, it doesn't happen often but when it happens like if i want to get over the hump quickly i go there So affirmation is your love language. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. And <laughs> affirmations work. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I do mine every day. 
Good. You know, my cousin is a first grade teacher and uh, Gilead gives us a one day a year to volunteer. And I went to her class in the fall last year. And I think school is so different now than what it was when I went. But she has this tradition that every Friday they have kindness notes that they write to each other. Ah, So they just write the kids. And so some kids would come over to me and write me a kindness note and just give it to me and tell me like she liked my hair. And that was like the sweetest thing ever. But I (laughs) like how she's training them to be unafraid to share praise with others. And right. so they just distribute these kindness notes every Friday. And that's like when you go also on a religious retreat and they have these, uh, they call them warm and fuzzies. At the end of the retreat, you get a sandwich bag filled with warm and fuzzies. And then you open it up and someone will say something like, oh, I think you're really funny. Or I, I really like your outfit yesterday or whatever. And that's really good to mm. hear. So I love this whole idea of having kudos to just remind yourself how special you are. It works. Yeah. It works. Um, actually, back home in Florida, we used to do this uh, circle of love. So we would go camping And let's say it's five of us. And then I would say something I admire from you, from you, from you, for like, I would go around the circle and say something I admire admire about the other four people. Oh, wow. That's great. And then we would switch and switch and switch and go around. It's the circle of love. That's amazing. Yeah. That was college back in Florida, (laughs) like uh, I should have gone to college in California. I think that would have been like more hippie-dippy, <laughs> hippie definitely. Yeah. Go Bears. <laughs> I love it. So, okay, so that's imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that people treat you different because you're a Latina in a laugh setting? Do you feel that people look at you different or that they would say something to you that they wouldn't say to a male colleague? Do you ever experience any of that? I don't like to go in with this defensive view of people see me and they think outsider or she's different. I haven't thought of that ever. Not even when I was in high school through now. Mm -hmm. I never think of myself as being the only, even if I am. I never think about it that way because the way I see this, if I'm here, I'm here to play. So it's not a matter of differentness. And I don't believe in that because I think the moment you set yourself as like, I'm the only one, you're literally separating yourself from everyone else. And I've never done that. I think the moment you do that, you become a victim. You make yourself become a victim. And I don't like to do that. Have I been the only one before? Yes. And that happens often. But that only fuels my desire to not be different, to blend in with them. And I don't mean blend in physically or whatever, but I just mean in my performance. I want to perform just like them so they don't think because I'm different, that's the reason my performance is not the same. Right. You want to stand out in a positive way. Of course. Yeah. You want to stand out by let your job performance show that. Yeah, You're putting the definitely. effort that, that you need to put into this. And am I different than my colleagues and now are in graduate school? Absolutely. But I don't think it's a function. I think it's a function of my personality. And I wouldn't even say, oh, it's because I'm a Latina either. My brother is Latino too, and he has a very different, he's very serious and he has a lot of tact in which I don't really have very often. And so I wouldn't blame it on my ethnicity or my upbringing. I think that's a personal (laughs) attribute for better, for worse. But do people find me different? Probably. I don't actively think about it. And I think because the moment you do, then you're setting yourself up to be different. Right. And and, and I want to avoid that victim mentality as Mm -hmm. much as possible. Because once you fall into that vicious circle, see, it's hard to get out of it. I rather look at what's the positive impact I can make. Right. And there's also this issue of authenticity. So there's this big movement, um, at least in the Valley, I've seen it that places like LinkedIn, places like even Intel Mm -hmm. does this, Google, is that bring your own authentic self self to to work. So the fact that I'm Venezuelan, I'm also American, and I have an accent, and I really like sci-fi. So I have a Yoda in my cube. (laughs) 
And that's part of who I am. Mm -hmm. Like, I like it. I have a Yoda in my cube. And I feel comfortable, like, telling that to people. Because, yeah, I'm a nerd. I like nerdy things. Because I can bring my own authentic self to work. And guess what? When there's a soccer game, a football game, we'll take a break and we'll watch it in the lounge. Nice. Uh -huh. Because uh, everybody in my team does that. You know, so it's like we feel comfortable with each other in that sense. So that issue of authenticity, that's something that I wish everybody can do that at their own workplace. Right. And if you don't right now, I hope that someday you find a job that, that you can be uh, and bring your own whole self to work. Definitely. So how do you bring your own authentic self to work? You know, it's funny. My boss says that no one should wear a costume on Halloween here because it would be frowned upon. My department itself. This is not a dig against my company, but my department is very conservative. We're there to be scientists and you don't even share your personal life with your coworkers. It's just very much we're, we're here to science and then we move on. But despite that lack of personalness that comes or intimacy that we have in our department, I find that I don't have a hard time being myself because I overshare with about my life with others. And I think just by doing that, You invite them to also share of themselves with you. I saw a friend yesterday from graduate school as well. He's practically C-level exec at a startup. And I was telling him how I told my boss, I'm going to tell you your face now. I don't like working on preclinical programs. And then my, my buddy just laughed and he said, I've never met anyone like you. I don't know how I would react as a manager if someone said that to me. I don't want to say that it's not that I don't have any shame, but there is no harm in me telling him the truth. Able to say after all this time, I knew deep down that I didn't like working on these types of programs. I was always going to play nice. And if they gave me another one, I'd be like, I'm going to do it. And it's going to be mm -hmm. done well. But now I said, I can comfortably tell you now that I don't like this and I have no qualms in doing so. And so that's how I bring my whole self to work. I don't shy. I also, if I'm having imposter syndrome days, I will tell him, I don't think I should be a scientist. I don't know what I should be doing, but I shouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> no, th thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. Doctora Liliana de la Paz, anything else you'd like to share with this audience of young professionals, Latinos, Latinas? Yeah, I think for me, a big driving force in my life has been being inspired by other people and like what they've accomplished and what they do. One of my hobbies is going on LinkedIn and just stalking people and looking at what they've studied, what they've done, where they've worked, what they do now. That's a really big driver and motivator to inform what I want to do or to help fuel that fire, if you will. So I have always found that I love to surround myself with people that I deem smarter than myself and that I think are more ambitious because that will add to the fire, like I said. And so I think it's really important to surround yourself by people who are smarter because the other thing is you'll learn from them and the way they think and the way they talk and how they articulate their ideas. And that really makes a big difference in how you're perceived through life and, and how you carry yourself. And so I think that's been really instrumental in my development and having those right friendships. And I wouldn't even call them mentors. It's just the people who are my right. friends that I admire. My friends are people I admire. They're people I want to spend time with because they make me feel good, but they help me grow professionally and personally. So I think that makes a big difference. Yeah. And I feel like a, a lot of us can actually do some spring cleaning with our friendships, uh, especially when it comes to choosing who you spend your time with. It's okay to have time, spend time with friends that look just like you, mm -hmm. that come from the same place that you do. But it's also great to expand your horizons. Of course. Mm -hmm. And make the effort to actually, yeah, I want to spend time with this other person that is a little bit more ahead of me. And let me see what I can learn from them and what can they learn from me. 
And sometimes you'll find out you admire this person, you get to know on a deeper level, you find out they have holes just like you do, and they're afraid and they don't know better. And that's also really reassuring because when you are in doubt and afraid, you realize everyone is everyone's just as scared as you are and everyone's just fronting it. Yeah. And that's how I think uh, every time that somebody writes me an email in LinkedIn that listen to this podcast and they say, Señor Castellanos, thank you so much. For, <laughs> like, Señor Castellano, that, that's my dad. No? Like, come on, like, uh, but thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> bueno, doctora, thank you so much for your time and thank you for joining us. Un placer. Thank you. <laughs> 